Odyssey celebrates Father's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Our lives aren't like they used to be. They're busier. Early morning Zooms, grabbing coffee to make that in-office meeting, getting to your kid's soccer game on time. Life is different, and so is advertising. To reach any audience, you need your message out there in all media, broadcast to streaming, on screens, and right to the ears of your customers. And that's what we do at Odyssey. Let's build a media campaign that targets the customers you know and want to reach more of. Right here in our community. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Good morning, everybody. It is 10 o'clock. On a Sunday morning, I'm Glenn Mack now, along with my pal, Ray Dinger. Nice to see you, Ray. You look uh, spiffy today. Oh, nice to see you, Glenn. You dress very nicely for a Sunday. Hmm? You dress very nicely for a Sunday. You put on your collared shirt, and mm-hmm. khakis, and mm-hmm. so on. I'm here in a sweatshirt and jeans, and, you know. <laughs> hey, it's you and me and Dan Wilson today. You know, I didn't know I had to impress, but you look good. I mean that in a good way. Well, I appreciate that. Sure. I, I, I try to carry myself like a professional. All right. Um, a lot we want to get to today, including at noon, a special edition of Tell Us Your Story. It has been our privilege to do this feature. Wow, we're coming up on two years. We started it right when the pandemic began in March of 2020. We have done 101 of these. And uh, you came up with the idea a little while back. Let's let's take some of the well, I'll just let you explain it. What are we doing? Well, it's, it's that's we call it best of, and that's really what it is. Best of, tell us your story. And you, you're right. We've been doing these for two years. We've done more than a hundred interviews, um, and they've been great. I mean, not, they've been fun. I mean, they've been fun for you. They've been fun for me. Hopefully, they've been fun for the audience. Uh, but within and from all sports and people from uh, you know broadcasters, athletes, coaches, executives. I mean, we've. We've run the gamut, really, uh, in the course of two years. We've gotten just these people just coming on and for one hour telling us their story. And there's a lot of, I mean, just a goldmine of wonderful anecdotes and wonderful personal experiences and some really insightful stuff, some really touching stuff, some really warm and fuzzy stuff, and some stuff that's very, frankly, surprising, things that you didn't, you didn't know, I didn't know. A lot of really good stuff there. So I said, why don't we, why don't we put it together? Why don't we just do, to mark the 100th, the hundred shows. Why don't we do a best of? We collect the best of the stuff and put it together. And what we found out was when we started culling the material, we realized that there was way more than one show, and we wound up with three shows. So we've run two, and today is number three. Yeah, and it's got a good theme to it. Yeah, it's called uh, uh, "Nice to Meet You," and it's a, a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it are stories that our interview subjects talk about when they met someone. Uh, in their in their life or their career that made a difference or made an impression. So there's some really good stuff in there. And then there's also the, the back half of it is, is just some general stories, which um, Al Michaels talking about broadcasting when the earthquake hits the World Series. Uh, Pat Croce, <laughs> you never get tired. Uh, Pat, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's a glad to meet you, but that was a meeting. Yeah, Pat Croce talking about trying to be the owner of the Sixers and keep peace between Allen Iverson and Larry Brown is very funny. And you know, Michael Buffer comes on and tells us how he came up with Let's Get Ready to Rumble. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? How did he create it? Why did he create it? And how it's grown. So uh, it's really going to be a lot of fun. So that, that's at noon today. All right. So a lot to cover between now and then, uh, including a what we're watching we're going to do, Ray's draft preview. But uh, I, I want to start with some questions for Ray. I always say it's five questions for Ray, but we never get to all five. So I, I make no promises. But here we go. Here's number one. 
It is still the big story, Ray. One day later, two days uh, after Friday night. Uh, how do you feel about James Harden's debut on Friday? Let me tell you, you and I were wondering what the TV ratings were going to be. It set the record for the highest ever for NBC Sports Philadelphia for a regular season Sixers game. And they've been covering it since they came on, right? Mm-hmm. When that station starts, pre-Iverson, when did they start? It's like 25 years now. Okay, yeah, well, there you go. Uh, all-time highest ever rating they had for regular season game. Third highest ever, including playoffs. So all those years under Iverson when the Sixers were, you know, going deep into the playoffs. I guess a lot of those are on network, but still. Um, the fans are excited, and they certainly should be. By the way, James Harden's number one jersey is the top-selling jersey on NBA.com over the last couple of weeks. Today, they go into Madison Square Garden. Boy, Madison Square Garden is like the mecca of basketball, and their, their team just stinks. Yep. Um, 25 and 35 are the Knicks, losers of four straight. Without Derrick Rose, without Kemba Walker, without Quentin, Quentin Grimes. Anyway, my question for you is, how you feeling two days later? Uh, the same. Excited about the team. Excited about the future. Excited about what they're building there. And, uh, you know, this, the Sixers are not generally appointment viewing for me. I'll watch them sometimes and other times. Eh, I'm going to watch them now. I sure watched the other night. And, uh, look, I don't know that it's going to be that good and that easy every time out. It probably won't. Uh, be nice if it was, but I doubt it. Uh, but, yeah, sure, I'm going to watch today because it's going to be, um, you know, it, it, there is, you, you said it. I mean, the Knicks are not good and haven't been good for a long time and haven't really been a big player in the NBA for a long time. But there's still no mistaking the magic that is Madison Square Garden. And national television on a Sunday afternoon, Madison Square Garden is big time. And you know the Sixers are feeling it. You know James Harden's feeling it. Uh, and I kind of want to see – we saw what they could do against you know, a pretty mediocre kind of team in Minnesota. Let's see what they can do in Madison Square Garden. Because you know the Knicks, there's going to be a big national audience. There's going to be a lot of national media there. Um, you know, James, and there's going to be – it's not going to be all that friendly because, you know, James Harden kind of ran out on the Brooklyn Nets. So he's going back to not exactly their same arena, but certainly the same area. So there's going to be some grumbling, and there's going to be it's not going to be a warm welcome, I wouldn't suspect. But let's just see how he handles it. Let's just see how the team handles it and go from there. I mean, everybody's looking down the road to March the 10th, and, and you and I have both yeah, kind we're, of— We're going to get into that in just yeah, a moment. Yeah, you and I both yeah. have our own feelings of how that's going to go. But today, I mean, Chapter 2 of James Harden joins Philadelphia and the Sixers, yeah, I'm in. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, and, yeah, I'm going to rush home from here, put it on TV, and spend my afternoon watching basketball, which is— not my usual bill affair either. It took about 90 seconds for the chemistry to develop the other night, and that was the amazing part. You know, we thought, ah, it's going to take a while, and I hear what you say. There will be some ups and downs, and they may, you know, have a couple dumb turnovers today, but gosh almighty, it was great. And I also said this yesterday, and, and I, I want to see more of this. I've been watching the Sixers since I moved here in, well, it was during the Barkley era, right, post, post the 83 team. I was here for like the last year of Doc, but it was really Barkley's team and and that team and then watching that team decline and then the buildup with Iverson and then after that and then all those kind of mediocre years and then the process. I've never seen a player on the Sixers like James Harden who can create his own shot, who can 
who can pass, who's going to have, you know, 11, 12 assists a game, who can who can dribble, who can run, who finds – when I say pass, he find. I think Allah Abdelnabi said this the other day when he was talking about his, his passing and how accurate it was. He doesn't just get it to the guy. He said he puts it in his pocket. Right. And I thought that was a brilliant way to describe it. Um, and it's fun to watch. I was not here. I don't – well, I don't even remember watching Hal Greer. I don't know how old I would have been when he played. The best Sixers guards that I remember are Mo Cheeks as a point guard and Allen Iverson as kind of a unique entity. Um, I'm not going to tell you James Harden's the best ever to play for the Sixers. He's played one game, and he's only going to have a couple of years here. But I've never seen anybody with this skill set here. Have you? Um, well, when you're, when you're talking about the guards, you do. I mean, were you here for Andrew Tony at all? No, I came right after Tony. Okay. Because he would have to be in that discussion. Yeah, I came right after him. Different kind of player. I, I mean, came. I came pl- the year that not a playmaker, that, but a great scorer. I came the year that Harold Katz was bemoaning him for what Harold suggested were fake injuries. Okay, that's the year I moved here. Yeah, the Andrew Tony, the Andrew Tony era was winding down then for sure. But when he was when he was young and when he was at his best, um, he was a dynamic player, but a different kind of player. He was just a pure scorer. Right. He was not a playmaker. Right. You know, James Harden is is a playmaker point guard who led the league in scoring. That's a rare combination. Yeah. yeah. Iverson was this unique entity, right? Who put up thirty points a game. Right. Mo was but didn't really involve his teammates that much. That's, no, that's and, then, the and that's the that's way the they built a team. Right. right, that's the way they built a team. And uh, Mo Cheeks, of course, was the ultimate point guard, right? The prototype great point guard distributor. And, and, then, and a great defender. And a great defender. And then there's this guy. Well, he's not a great defender, Harden. So no. I guess that part goes out. All right, second thing. Um, news comes out yesterday from, from Shams and the others who cover the NBA. Sources. Nets star Ben Simmons is dealing with back soreness in a reconditioning process that requires further strengthening of the area over a period of time before returning to action. Steve Nash on Simmons yesterday, quote, it's not like an injury. It's just like he's returning to play. His back's flared up a little bit. And then Nash said, but it's not a long-term thing. Ray, I can tell you exactly how long-term I think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Go right ahead. Today, what, February 27th? 27, 28 plus 10, 12, 13 days. Mm-hmm. I think that's how long this back thing's going to be. He's going to wake up on March the 11th, and all the symptoms will be gone. Ah. <laughs> it's. I hate to. I hate to be so cynical. No, with I him, I hate it, to be it, so cynical. You, but what? You, with but him, but this, but there's no choice. You no, he leaves you no choice. Sure, sure. And how is? First of all, I, I I'm bothered that he calls him a star, but I guess you have to. How is Ben Simmons not a, not in condition to play in the NBA? Um, wasn't he supposed he was working out all year? He's he's young. He's not injured per se. They've got vets who haven't played in the last three or four years who they bring in and they're ready to go the next day. Yeah. The difference is they want to play. That's the difference. The difference is those guys want to play. This guy doesn't want to play. That's just it, it. Really, you want to put you want to put a bottom line on it. That's it. He doesn't want to play. Yeah. Boy, they're going to regret that up there. I don't know how Harden thing works out long term. Again, I, I think for the short term, this is going to be great. Yeah. Well, there there really is no long term. Right. Harden. I right. Mean, it's. I mean, you know exactly what you've you know exactly what you're going for. You're going for the, the here and the now. You're going to try and win a championship right now. And 
listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in with that because we lived through the whole process, you know, which was where there was no end in sight. Okay, now the end is in sight, and it may be what you were trying to get all along. So, yeah, but the Ben Simmons thing is not going to – I mean, this, you look at this, this, this guy that's not going to win a championship. You know, it's just, he's just not. He's just not a winner. And there, I think they're already. He hasn't even he hasn't even stepped on the court yet, and I think they're all beginning beginning to realize. I it. think they're going to have buyer's remorse very quickly, as you say. They may already have buyer's remorse. If you're a, if you're a fan up there, right, and you're thinking the same thing that people thought here initially when the Sixers drafted Ben Simmons, it comes in as working. Oh, this skill set is unique, and look what he can do. And oh my God, and defend and pass. And I think they're going to realize really quickly, like, oh boy, we bought the lemon. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Uh, let me sneak in one call. I don't want to toss in another issue, but Aaron in Balakinwood wants to talk about his excitement over Harden. By the way, 215-592-9494. Hey, Aaron, what's on your mind? Hey, you guys. How you doing? All right. Happy Saturday. How are you? Sunday, but that's okay. Oh, Sunday. You're right. You're that's right. All right. You're right. Well, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just so overjoyed with the situation. You know, we've had to deal with these guys, Danny Green, Tobias Harris, Simmons, complaining about the fans, all this other stuff for the past year. With, I mean, on top of Simmons. And now we got a guy, it seems like he's locked in. And that's just what I love to see. That's what I've been loving to see. Yeah, you know what's fun to see is the immediate relationship, and I guess it predates this, that he has with Embiid. Uh, and I'm talking about the on, uh, the on ice, listen to me. I'm talking about the on-court chemistry, and I'm just also talking about, you saw them afterward in the news conference kind of enjoying each other. I, I, think, uh, I think it's beginning rays, they say, of a beautiful friendship. I think so. I think so too. I think they have like a buddy movie. There you go. They're so they're so funny <laughs> together already. You know what? That would be a great little gig, right? You could do something like that. Uh two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four. All right, Ray, I wanna bring in a couple other issues here. I wanna we're gonna talk about everything today in the time that we have. So I wanna talk about baseball. Uh do you mind a, a small rant first? Uh go right ahead. At this point, it, it nobody should be deluded into anything other than that it's the owners and Rob Manfred who are why baseball is going to miss games. Uh, They're going to announce as early as tomorrow that the season isn't going to start on time. And the owners, I I, I don't want to get into too much into the specifics of the negotiations because fans don't care, nor should they. Right. But just know that the owners won't move 1% on issues. They won't move $1 million. I was looking at it. It's like they won't move a million dollars. I'm saying a million dollars per team. Million, it's a million dollars for the sport. Um, they're digging in because they want to win. And if they took what the players are offering now, they would still have the win. The players are asking for so little relative to the revenue that's in baseball. Anyway, in my mind, I wish we had owners who really loved baseball, who really cared about baseball, uh, who really liked it as a sport rather than their secondary business for whatever they do, tobacco or otherwise. And I will tell you that, in my opinion, John Middleton and all the other major league owners who are about to cancel the start of the season and lock out the players should be ashamed because the sport's in big trouble for a lot of reasons, and this thing is going to be a crippling blow. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. Uh, I know, I believe, you told me you were on earlier this week with the midday guys and you talked about how to save baseball or what yeah. should be done to save baseball. Yeah, they were. that was their theme of, of the whole, of pretty much the whole day, and I, I just joined them for one hour. What was your best idea? 
for saving baseball? Yeah. I mean, we're getting past collective bargaining. Yeah, no, no, no. We're talking about the the game. game. Because here, you and I agreed on this last week. When we talked about it a little bit last week, we said they're going to dither over whether Super 2 arbitration-eligible players should be part of this money pool. And, and like, that's none of that is going to help what we agree is a game that's suffering because of the product on the field. Right. So staying away from or – conceding that these negotiations are not dealing with the real problems. Right. And we know the real problems. I want to come to you, and I guess I'm going to piggyback off what you guys did earlier in the week because I didn't get to hear it, but I want to hear, like, your idea. I want to hear the listener's idea for what do you do to make baseball better because we love – you and I love the sport. We've often talked about for both of us it was our first sport, Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to sit down and watch a nine-inning game. Yes, virtually impossible. So how do we make it better? Um. I, I put out what I've been I've said to you when you and I've been doing the show I've, I've said it a hundred times I expand the strike zone mm-hmm. I'd take the strike zone back to what it was originally designed to be call the strike zone from the letters to the knees um, I think that one simple adjustment would cha- would dramatically change everything because instead of hitters standing up there taking pitches taking pitches taking pitches waiting for the walk making the pitch counts run up. If, if you take the strike zone back to what it used to be, you know, guess what? All those 2-0 counts are now going to be 0-2 counts. And, and hitters can't keep taking pitches. They're going to have to become more aggressive. They're going to have to swing the bat because they're going to be protecting a bigger strike zone. That's, you know, and if you get that, then you got, you know, then the whole game changes. Then guess what? Pitchers aren't at 100 pitches in the fifth inning, you know. So maybe your starting pitchers can go deeper into games. It's... If you just change the strike zone back, and I'm not saying change it, revolutionize it, take it somewhere where it's never been. I'm just saying take it back to what it used to be. Armpits the bigger, to knees? The bigger, where are you going? The, the, from the letters. Letters to knees? The letters to the knees, uh-huh. what, the way it used to be. And you'll make hitters, will have to, the hitters will have to become more aggressive. And you'll have a more, you'll have a, a more offensive game. You won't, have pit, you won't have guys up there waiting and looking and running counts because they're not going to be able to. The pitch that they used to take for a ball is now going to be a strike. I like that. I'm in. I, I'm absolutely in. I'll give you another one. And our pal Jason Stark wrote a great piece uh, for The Athletic this last week. Looking at something that it sounds like from Jason's story, there is a consensus that, that doing what I'm about to say is a good idea, except that they're so distracted by the other stuff that they're not going to get to it. And that is I would make the shift illegal. Mm-hmm. I think the shift is the thing that has hurt the game as much as anything else. And I agree with what you just said. Um, but I think the shift is something that has basically taken away a left-handed hitter's ability to send a line drive over second base for a single into right field, um, made ground ball hits, which now you can't do because there's so many damn infielders. He, he, um, Jason had a, had a statistic. I, I think Bill James did this. 2013, so we're talking eight seasons ago, the shift was done basically 7,000 times all season by every team in baseball. Last year, it was done 60,000 times. Jeez, mm-hmm. it seems like it was more. <laughs> 60,000 60, pitches. And um, it means that more than half the balls put into play last year were hit into the shift. And you see how it's just – it crushes. And I know there are people who say, oh, why isn't the guy – why didn't Ryan Howard just try to bunt it over to past third base? And I would get frustrated sometimes when Ryan Howard would try to power one through the guys. But I'll give you a quote. This is in Jason's story. This is from Freddie Freeman. 
okay? Mm-hmm. That rover in right field, it's very rare that I hit one into that shift. It's just the one up the middle is the one that gets me. I'm like, I've been taught my whole life to hit a line drive up the middle. That's what I learned. Now I'm out. So maybe if they eliminate that and they keep the shortstop on the left side of the bag, I might get some more hits. Freddie Freeman is one of the best hitters in baseball. Yeah, he is. And a guy who can spread it around. Freddie Freeman is not just the guy who always tries to, you know, power it through. But he's right. It's it's so has taken away the taken away fielding, running, hitting, every base running, every aspect of the game. And I would to me it's the simplest change in the world. Yeah. You have to have two guys on each side of second base. Uh, and they have to start to play with a foot in the dirt, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And to me, that would be a immediate improvement. Well, okay, I think take take your idea, take my idea, implement them both, and I think you've with as simple as that. I think you've dramatically you've dramatically changed the game for the better. I think we got a good start. Yeah. All right. There you go. Two one five five nine two ninety four ninety four. We'll take some callers coming up in the next segment. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack, now Sunday morning on ninety four WIP. Along with Ray Dinger, I'm Glenn Macknow, and, and uh, you just <laughs> – it's funny, during the break, you, you read something. I know got you upset. Um, so I'm going to play the cut. You're reading it in the paper, but uh, I think it was Thursday maybe. Uh, Danny Green of the Sixers uh, decided he was going to uh, opine on Ben Simmons, and here's what he had to say. Interesting dynamic yes. of how things went down. Interesting dynamic of who went with him. I don't know. I haven't got a chance to talk to those guys yet. But I know they weren't on the most of cordial terms when he was in Philly with Drum and Seth. Um, so I wonder how that relationship is now. I got a chance to talk to them. Now, will we shake hands to start? Probably not. First, I'd be highly sh- surprised if he even plays in that game. I don't know where his health is mentally, physically. I know he had other issues. And I don't. we all know that he does not like to play in Philly. So if he does play in that game, I'd be highly surprised. All right, so you uh, you just read this, and it made you think about what? Made me think about last year when Danny Green called out the fans for being mean to Ben Simmons, and it was sort of like he was defending Ben. How's he how how's he supposed to perform and play in this kind of an environment? And now here he is. Now that Ben Simmons is wearing the other jersey, basically calling without coming out and saying it, saying that Ben Simmons doesn't have the mental toughness to, to play in this life. Basically what he's saying, he said, you know, I don't know if he's going to play or not. I would highly doubt it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's kind of an indictment, wouldn't you say? I would absolutely say. And so, you know, for a guy who became Ben, ben Simmons' big public defender last year, you know, it seems to me like he's, uh, he's jumped to the other side. Yes, it does. Truth comes out. So you were – I think he was I'm, trying I'm, to cover I'm, for was, a teammate. I'm, li- I'm lying then, but I'm telling the truth today. Is yeah, that what we got well, here? Well, I think he was covering for a teammate then, but he could have covered for the teammate without going at the fans. It's always easy to go at the fans, right? The fans had nothing to do with Ben Simmons ever. The fans didn't turn on Ben Simmons until after the Atlanta loss. Right. The fans are right with him up till that, you know, make the foul shot. The fans are trying to get him to make the foul shot. Exactly. Uh, and then, yeah, and yeah, Danny Green took an unfair shot at the fans defending a teammate, which is an easy, convenient thing for players to do sometimes, and I don't admire when they do it. Fans aren't to blame. Yeah, I'd say yeah, sort of disingenuous. Okay? Yeah, I, and that's, that's, I, I, felt, yeah. I felt when I read that, I said, wait a minute, isn't this the same guy that – but 
you know, I mean, to, to try and put the best possible face on it and say, okay, maybe he was sticking up for a teammate then, and now he's telling the truth. But Yeah, that's what I think. But, you know, again, it, it just sort of, well, why did you feel the need to say what you said a year ago? Just keep your mouth shut. If that's not really do. what you believe, then why say it? Because it's easy to do. Uh, our pal Jack the Dude checks in this morning. How are you, Jack? Hey, it's great to, great to hear you guys uh, shuttle it around, as always. Thank you, you sir. Know, you, you get everything. Um, uh, I wanted to make a comment about Harden's uh, court, court intelligence as, as it pertains to uh, growing up here on the West Coast in, in my late 20s at the height of Magic Johnson's career, um, um, the way he saw the court and, and Harden was, he was developing as a basketball play, player during that era. So I think there's an influence there, the way his court intelligence passes people into, into shots, like what he did for Maxi the other night. You yeah. saw you saw Magic do that all the time with those those three quarter court uh, bounce passes with Byron Scott on the wing, James Worthy on the wing. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's going to be. Um, I don't know if it's going to work in the playoffs, but I think it's going to be pretty exciting in Sixerland with this with this guy playing point guard. They became the most. They guys. they became immediately uh, so compelling. Uh, listen, I I. To me, Magic Johnson is one of the ten greatest players in the history of the league. So I, I always Absolutely. get nervous with those comparisons. But I do hear what you're saying, and Maxi is a guy who I think is going to bend from this as much as anybody because Maxi is so fast, right? And when you watched him the other night, yeah. it's like, oh my god, he's so yeah. fast. And the reason he had, hadn't always seemed that fast is because he had the ball in it. He's got to bring the ball up when he doesn't have the ball. When Harden has the ball and can find Maxi, I think you're going to see Maxi's speed just. Uh, be, well, be, just crush other teams. Ray can comment on this, but that's what Tony had. Tony had that explosive first step, and I, I think he's going to turn him in, into an Andrew Tony. Personally, uh, what do you think, Ray? Well, they're different types. I, I, you know, the explosive first step is certainly accurate. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. what you sometimes lose sight of is, is you know, Tony was big. You know, Tony yeah, was, was Tony was big, yeah, and he yeah, was he, and he was strong. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, Maxi Maxi isn't that. Maxi isn't the, isn't the physical package that Tony was. I mean, Tony was a big, strong guy uh, who had who had tremendous quickness uh, and could just shoot the lights out from distance. But when he took it to the basket, nobody could stay with him physically. So if Maxi's going to beat you to the basket, he's going to beat you with speed. He's not going to beat you with the same combination of speed and power that Tony had. Tony was truly a unique player. If he hadn't been injured, and when we had, when we had Billy Cunningham on for Tell Us Your Story, uh, and you asked you asked Billy the question, who were the easiest guys to coach and who were the toughest guys to coach? Uh, he, well, he said the toughest guy to coach was Daryl Dawkins. No yeah. surprise. Yeah. But but cl- a close second was Andrew Tony, and uh, and he said, but for all of that, I, I have to say that if he hadn't been injured, he would have been a Hall of Fame player. And, and I think that that's true. And by the way, for people who ask, and I get asked this a lot, uh, you know, you should have this guy and tell us your story. You should have that guy. Uh, people suggest to me Andrew Tony a lot. They would love to hear Andrew Tony. Uh, we reached out, and we were certainly not the first. And Andrew Tony does not do interviews. He does. He's 
he's just it's not anything that he's going to do. He didn't even talk much when he played, to be yeah. honest. He, it wasn't yeah. his thing. And then he, he was divorced from the team for so long. There were such bad feelings for that. And I don't. I just don't think he's comfortable talking about any of that. No. So anyway, uh, Joe it was and, fun to watch though. Yeah, I I, I, I was not here for that. Um, Joe and Mayfair is with us. Hey, Joe. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Always a pleasure to listen to the show. Thank you. You know, before I get into the Sixers and Harden with with how to fix baseball, you know, regardless of the steroid era or not, back in the 90s, 20, 30 years ago, there was a lot less to do in life than there was then. Baseball players loved, ate, dreamt, slept baseball. It was ESPN was a monster back then with the marketing. You had you can name six players on every lineup. In today's world, it's, you know, video games, social media. The talent's not there, whether steroids or not. The passion from the players don't seem to be there. The marketing's not there. I, I don't agree with the first two points. I agree with the marketing. I, I, I think the players have played are as passionate as they ever were. I mean, what you're They're saying, not, I, I heard in the 90s, I heard people say that about baseball in the 60s. I've heard that my whole life, that players don't care like they used to. And I think the players do. And I think the reason it's not as popular now, first of all, I just think the game isn't as good. I mean, are the players in football as passionate as they were 25 years ago? No. Oh, I think they are. They're not. Sure they are. Why wouldn't they be? Uh, to the fans, no. To themselves, maybe. I'm it's talking about to, to the their fans. craft. To their craft. I'm not saying. I'm talking towards the fans of how you get the fans back. How do you save the game? Oh, you're saying the f- players need to reach out more. Okay. I mis- I misconstrued your point. Y- y- yes, the marketing. Like, the, the care about the interviews, like, we need to hear your fans. Like, the fans need to be part of the game. Regardless of you fix the Mickey Mouse, fixing my gloves in the batter's box, or taking too long in the pitcher's mound, if the product stinks, if there's no excitement running first to third, or if you're not promoting someone hitting 20 triples or <coughs> or 40 homers, I couldn't name you five players who hit 40 homers. I can 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, but I don't. The game I, was different. Like, yeah, there were too many homers. I think there's too many homers now. I think that's one I'm of the things not, that I'm hurts. Talking the game. about, I'm talking about how they marketed it, the sport of the, of the nuance. When fantasy baseball was huge back then, now it's gambling. But fantasy baseball, I think, also saved baseball a lot in that era when you were looking at box scores every day and you had yeah. teams and how great that's that Joe, was. Back I, I, in the I day. always appreciate. I appreciate talking to you, but I, I disagree. I think that it's. I mean, I read box. It's it's what time? It's also what time you are in your life, right? When I was a kid. I read the box scores every morning. That was the first thing I did, mm-hmm. right? In the newspaper. My God, get right. the newspaper, get the box scores. I'd be really upset if you know somebody played the Angels and the box score wasn't in because the game ended too late. Although newspapers back then were better at that, but that's a whole separate rant, isn't it? That's a whole separate story um, for another day. But anyway, I. He says the players are not as, uh, if I understand him correctly, players aren't as fan-friendly as they used to be. Who was the best player 25 years ago? Barry Bonds. Sure. Uh, was he a fan-friendly, media-friendly guy? No, the opposite. Okay. Roger Clemens? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Baseball's always had creeps at the top, creeps among the superstars. Right. So I don't think it's that. No, I don't think so. I I will agree that one problem baseball has. You and I talked about this yesterday. Is the guys who are the biggest stars are unknown. Mike Trout is known, as we said yesterday, mostly because we see him in the end zone in Eagles games. Right, you see him at Eagles games. Yeah, you know Juan Soto is one of the great young players in Washington. Nobody knows who he is. No, but that's not his fault. 
No. No, I, I, I think the, to me, it's, a, it's just as simple as the game's not as good. I mean, it's just, I mean, you can talk all around it, all different stuff, and, and, you know, the marketing of this and the availability of that and the accessibility and so forth. Did they sign autographs? Did they not sign autographs? Players were blowing fans off 30 years ago, 40 years ago. That's Mickey, Mickey Mantle would do that back in the 60s. That's nothing new. Yeah. Sure, I'd say that's nothing new. Um, but what what it really comes down to is the game is just the game is just not fun to watch anymore no. and that's what they have to address if they yeah. really want if they really if you really want to talk about the greatest ill of baseball right now it's the state of the game and it's unwatchability that's the biggest problem hey i want to uh, sneak in another issue here cuz i know this is something that you wanted to bring up and i don't want the show to get away without it which is we all know about the um fight, whatever you want to call it, that broke out last week, I think it was a week ago today, between Juwan Howard and Greg Gard uh, at the end of the Michigan-Wisconsin game. By the way, I'm sorry about Juwan Howard, but it was kind of nice to see Phil Martelli back coaching the team this Yes, week, it was. Right? <laughs> Put that game on against Rutgers, and there's Phil. Anyway, um, so uh, Juwan Howard gets upset by Wisconsin calling a timeout late in the game when they were way up, and it bleeds over into the handshake line when I, I think actually Gart kind of started it by putting his hands on Juwan Howard to make him stop, and then Juwan Howard lost his cool. Right. I'm not, not exonerating Juwan Howard. He's mostly to blame. But out of that came the usual hand-wringing and suggestions from many people, including, by the way, Patrick Ewing, that we should do away with the handshake line. And I know you wanted to talk about that. Yeah, that bothers me. That bothers me. Um, you know, that's that. What happened in that game was was wrong. Uh, the coaches were wrong. Uh, they set a bad example. It was an unfortunate situation. I think that, to be honest with you, I think that Jawan Howard should have been sat down for the year. I'm surprised they're even bringing him back for the tournament. But be that as it may, um, they deserved the punishment that they got, and it was really a bad scene. Um, certainly a a black eye for those guys and a un- very uncomfortable very uncomfortable time for college basketball but the to to take that and say okay that does it no more no more post game handshakes you know let's just do away with this display of good sportsmanship and just surrender to the forces of bad sportsmanship let's just let's just sort of concede which is what they're saying here let's just sort of concede that there's impossible to have good sportsmanship in sports today so let's not even try to go there you know, let's just end the game and we'll, and we'll go and we'll go to the respective dressing rooms and that'll be that. Well, I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's a terrible idea. You know, it's, that is a display of good sportsmanship. And 99% of the time it goes fine. And it's been part of sports forever. So why now because of this? They're saying, you know what? No, let's not even do that. I think one of the, I think one of the, to me, one of the best moments in sports is at the end of a Stanley Cup playoff, when the two teams who have been pounded on each other for seven games, when the series is over, line up and shake hands. I think that's a great moment at yeah. the end of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I've always thought that's a great moment. And, and what it basically says is, implicit in that is, look, I may not like you, but I respect you. Mm-hmm. And that's really the definition of sportsmanship. So to just say, well, we can't even do that anymore. Let's not even try to do that anymore, to me, is a huge step back. And I... You know, I, I know some columnists jumped on the thing, and I kind of expected that. I know that the, the talking heads on TV had this argument, which was just stupid, but they have stupid arguments all the time. But to hear people that, <laughs> but to hear people that are actually in sports, uh, like Patrick Ewing, take that side and say, yeah, let's just do away with the handshake, to me was, I thought that was, it really bothered me, and I wanted to just kind of throw that out there. 
Uh, the best thing I read was Tom Izzo, uh, Michigan State, who said, who rejected the whole idea of stopping. He said, no, it's the opposite. What we need to do is we need to teach people how to shake hands, not shaking hands. That's typical of our country right now. Instead of solving the problem, let's all make an excuse instead of confronting and demanding a change. Basically, and, and I agree with him, it, the ending of the handshake line is a continuation of everybody's got their own camp and we never agree on anything. And it's a simple, nice, positive gesture that, hey, we just fought for the last 48 minutes or 40 minutes or one hour, you know, however long. And in the end of it, we recognize that we're kind of in this thing together. Right. And Izzo taking it to a national, kind of the national mood right now, I get that. Mm -hmm. I think everybody is kind of like, we're us and you're the enemy and we're not going to talk. And if you extend it to something as simple as, not simple, but something as basic as college sports, or you mentioned the, the uh, NHL, yeah, you're giving in. And I'm uh, 100% with you. Yeah. Brilliant analysis, Ray. Thank you. 215-592-9494, Ed and John and Sam, we got you guys. We're looking to uh, get more. At 11 o'clock, by the way, Ray Binger, Chapter 2 of Ray's NFL Draft Preview. Ray, what are we going to cover today? I'm going to sort of uh, give a little preview of some of the news stories and headlines that you're going to hear starting this week when the combine gets underway in Indianapolis and and how it sort of speaks to me some of the nonsense that's involved in scouting and modern scouting and um, the idea of science taking over football. I'm going to give you a little sneak <laughs> preview of that. I love that, Ray. <laughs> My, it's my annual pre-combine rant. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite rays, by the way. Look forward to that. 215-592-9494. Ray didn't your Glenn Mack now. A 94 WIP. Ray didn't your Glenn Mack now. I, I don't want to say too much. We're watching TV, right? The TV's on in the studio, and there's, oh, God, we got the Bills-Chiefs playoff game on. Can we get that off, please? And there's. Come on, the Bills are about to kick a field goal. Yeah, oh, 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 well, this that'll that'll be an insurmountable lead, I'm sure. Uh, and then there's there's um, there's a, there's a golf thing on, right? And uh, listen, I I don't golf. I used to golf. I don't golf much anymore. But does every golfer just have to wear like a bad shirt? I've never seen you. First of all, you don't wear golf shirts, really. No. How come? Hmm? Comfy. How I like even in the summer, you're wearing like a like a you know a collared button down shirt. Usually, I have some golf shirts. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't wear them a ton. I wear them in the summertime, sure. I just don't play. I just don't play golf. Right. But I, but I have, you know, if if you're in our business, God, you're look at that shirt on that guy. If, if it's <laughs> orange and pink and brown, that's just repulsive. <laughs> well, there there you go. That's one of the reasons why I don't wear golf shirts. Right. They all kind of they tend to look like that. Right. It's like normal conservative person who you know. But you go on a golf course, you got to dress like a clown. <laughs> well, I have. I haven't swung a golf club since 1976, and I have no intention of doing that anytime soon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, Ed in Marlton is with us. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind? Uh, a couple things. First of all, a question for Ray and then a comment on how I think baseball can be improved. So, first of all, the question for Ray. Ray, are there any local guys that you expect to make an impact in the NFL draft this year? Um, well, you got a couple Penn State guys for sure. I mean, you kind of got a couple Penn State guys who I think are going to be. That's not are, local. Are, local, local? Yeah, I mean more like, Villanova, like, Temple, you know, any of those guys? Um, no, nobody that I can think of that's going to be, that, you know, that's going to be a high draft pick. You might, I mean, you might get it. You might get it. 
You might get a uh, somebody like in a third day kind of thing, like a Sean Bradley okay. kind of guy. I mean, might might pop up, but I don't think anybody that's going to be impactful. No. Okay. So my comment on how to improve, improve baseball. So let me preface this by saying, I look at the catcher as the quarterback of the baseball team, just like the quarterback of a football team. And years ago, the quarterback of the football team used to call their own plays all the time. Well, Vanderbilt just started this this year. And remember, they were one of the teams that went to the College World Series last year and almost won it. They actually lost in the finals. Mm -hmm. They have implemented something where the pitchers are now wearing a wristband. And the catchers, the quarterbacks, are no longer calling pitches. The pitching coach is now calling pitches for the pitchers. So the pitchers don't shake off the catchers. There's... And I think that's the problem with baseball. Baseball's too slow. Even for me, an old person hates to see all the shaking off. See, that's funny. I, so I agree with you that it's too slow, and it's too slow between pitches. But I think it's too slow between pitches because the pitcher gets off the mound and walks around, and because the batter has to you know, do 18 little moves, gestures uh, between every pitch. And to me... I would do a pitch a pitch clock for both the batter and the pitcher. However, I always find the shaking off of the signs to be intriguing because I think like, all right, what is he calling? What is he shaking off? Is he looking for a fastball? And he's shaking. I, I that part doesn't bother me at all. Uh, where are you on this? Same, same. I, I mean, I like the uh, a lot of that stuff. The I'm fascinated with the center field camera and uh, and and the communication between the pitcher and the catcher. Right. I mean, to me, that's two fingers, three fingers, yeah, all that. When, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see what he's calling for here. Oh, the pitcher doesn't want that. I wonder why he doesn't want that. Okay, what does he want? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I can think. I can think with the two guys. Yeah. I actually, to me, that's one of the, that's one of the better parts of baseball because I think it, it should be more of a thinking man's game. Yes, I don't want a walkie-talkie from the pitch to the pitching coach telling no. him what he should do. No. Right. I I'm entirely the other way, but. We agree. One of the fundamental changes is stay in the stinking batter's box. Yes. Unless you get, you know, something in your eye, just stick in there. What, what, what do you need 30 seconds between? The one thing about the old game that did drive me crazy, I understood the purpose of it, but sometimes it drove me crazy, was the move to first base. You know, that, that sometimes that drove me crazy, was the holding the runner. Holding the runner. Yeah, but what are you going to do? No, I understand. But I, mean, I mean, if you limit it, then the runner just goes to the limit, and then he's got a free pass to run. I know, but I mean, every time, for example, you know, I'll just use an example. When more, if Maury Wills got on first base, it was like, oh no, because I knew it was going to happen. It was yeah. going to be twenty moves to first base now, and the game was just going, to, the game was just going to come to a dead stop. Um, and that's well. Know, the good news for you is nobody steals anymore. But nobody steals anymore. Yeah, which is a part of the game I actually miss a lot. I do too. Yeah. I found out now. I would I would trade a lot of the stuff in current baseball for the move to first base. If I if if we could get back to what we were, I'll live with the move to first base because it was infinitely better and more entertaining than what we're seeing now. Last year there was under one stolen base. Am I right here? Hold on. Under one stolen base attempt per game. That seems about right. Isn't that something? Well, when it happened, it took you by surprise. It was a shock. I mean, if the runner took off and tried to steal, it was like, whoa, what's yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, it used to be something a guy would get on first base, and he would say, you would accept the fact that, well, he's going to try and steal here. Yeah. You're going to try and steal. You don't even think that now. Phillies do like one a week. Yeah. I mean, a steal of second now is like what a steal of home used to be. Yeah.
And I, that's and that's the part of the game. And I think this relates to everything else we're saying. This relates to the shift. This relates to uh, the strike zone. This relates to everything else. You got to bring back running and fielding. I know this is silly. I miss a bunt. I do too. A hit and run, strategy stuff. Yeah, exactly. I do miss that stuff. But bringing the DH will bring more. Well, of that see, stuff. that's why. That but it will bring more of that stuff. You get a hit and run because you'll actually have a batter capable of doing it. Well, you get a stolen base because your nine-hole hitter theoretically can run. They're not going to have a pitcher steal. They're, well, they're used to, but there used to be a time when pitchers could bunt and yeah, pitchers could was, move the runner. That was that's not that's a thousand years ago. That's not coming back. No, I know, and that's and that's, but it could. Well, it could it, if they start doing it, you know, in college. If you let, you know, the college in the minor leagues, you got to take it throughout every level. Yeah, but that's that, it. Seems so silly. Now you're a pitcher. You don't you don't have to learn how to do that. Yeah, you know, be a ball player. That's well, there was a time that that you pitchers were ball players too. Yeah. Uh, John in Medford is with us. Hi, John. Good morning, guys. Hey. Hey, John. I, uh, first I want to say to Glenn, Glenn, I really appreciate you putting out that contest for the Pick'em. I really enjoyed oh. that. Oh, thank you. My- Last fan standing pool. Thank you. Geez, we've done that now. Uh, how many years in a row? 20 years in a row, something like that. We have a lot of fun with it. Thank you so much. The first year I played in it, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, good. And that's your accolade, and I always pay my accolade to the dean of football on Philadelphia, Ray Dittinger. How you doing, sir? I'm fine, John. How are you? Okay. Um, now, about baseball, um, you were talking about the shift earlier, Glenn, and the shift isn't something that just started happening within the last five to ten years ago. They used to put the shift on for Ted Williams. Yeah, but that was about it. Now they put the shift on for everyone. I don't know if these. these I'm going to give you the numbers one more time. And Jason Stark wrote this in the Athletic the other day. Uh, I'm sorry. This is batted balls into when there is the shift on. It's not pitches. It's batted balls. So mm-hmm. you're right, right? There are more. 2013, there were 6,800 balls hit when the shift was on. That was the last number. I'm going to give you 2020. So this is eight years. Went from 6,800 to 60,000. So, yes, they did it with Ted Williams, but that was about it. It was 1%. Now it's all it's more than half the pitches in baseball. And another guy did it, too, was um, um, what was his name? Buttermaker. That was a great movie. Love that movie. Yeah. But anyway, um, Ray, you were talking about uh, when I first turned it on, were you saying something about that we're going to make the strike zone bigger? No, I, that was my that was my suggestion to make the game better. Uh huh. It was uh, my suggestion to improve the current sorry state of baseball was to take the strike zone back to what it used to be, which is called which is called from the letters to the knees. Yeah. Expand the strike zone, and you know you won't and hitters won't be taking as many pitches. Yeah. I think that now this is a couple of things that are really crazy, and I just want after this I wanted to. Just bring up a, a couple of quick 76ers points. Now you got to go fast because we got to hit a break here, so go ahead. All right. So now to speed up the game, now they do this thing. Are they going to keep doing this thing where if it goes extra innings, you put a guy on second base or that's over? I don't know that. That's a great question. I'm sure that Ray despises that, and I'm not crazy about it either. It really makes my pearl. Yes. I can't stand it. Yes. So here's my thing. If they're going to do – that's a Mickey Mouse softball rule. For yes, you. indeed. So, if they're going to do that, why not put third strike and you foul it off, you're out. 
because that's also a bad idea. What's your Sixers thought? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, it's a bad idea. My Sixers thought is, I thought I saw James Harden playing a little defense the other night, if, if I wasn't mistaken. And I think that's a good thing. He had eight rebounds the other night, seven on defense. Yeah, yeah well. And uh, Danny Green stinks. He shouldn't have been <laughs> here this year. John, great call, man. Thank you. I got to run. Thank you so much. I don't need more softball rules in baseball. No. I understand he wants to speed up the game, but that's not one. No, no. What would, what would Richie Ashburn have done? Uh, Richie Ashburn was the master of fouling off the two-strike pitch. All right, Ray, I'll make you a deal. I will buy you your next Diet Coke if you can name the lady who Richie Ashburn hit with a foul ball twice. Once she was sitting in the seats, he hit a foul ball that clocked her. And the other time was when she was being carried out. She was being carried on a stretcher. I, <laughs> and he hit one that clocked her again. I, I've heard, I heard the story a dozen times. I can't remember the name of the woman. Edith Roth. Okay. There you go. And she was the, the wife of some club official at the time. But that's a true story, right? Yeah. Well, Richie swears that it is, and I, you know, I believe him. <laughs> got, Lord knows I've seen him foul off a million pitches. Yeah. 215-592-9494. If you're on hold... Don't go anywhere because we're going to get you coming up in the next segment. But first, Ray Dinger's NFL Draft Preview, right next on 94 WIP. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, MoneyWise. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts.